With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Welcome to the third bonus episode of Lost Tales. As promised, this week I am going to go over the facts and folklore, we'll say, behind the story of the Beast of Givaudan. Earlier this week, in fact yesterday, I read to you a story by James Grant, which was a fictionalized account of the Beast of Givaudan's terror. So today... I'll go ahead and continue along those lines and tell you what historians and researchers say really happened. Remember to subscribe, like, and leave a review on whichever platform you prefer for podcasts. Hit that bell if you'd like to be informed whenever I load something new up into the ether. Uh, It helps the channel grow and keeps me going, as you know, and as long as people are listening, I will keep researching and reading. Quote, The beast did not just attack. It devoured. It lunged for the neck, gored and mauled victims, and wrenched heads from bodies. 20,000 peasants from 100 parishes were drafted to comb the countryside and run it to the ground in 1765, and they failed. It teased and eluded a succession of royal hunters and kept on killing. La Bette became a national sensation, securing the attention of the king and attracting commentaries from Voltaire, Immanuel Kant, Frederick the Great of Prussia, and the English writer Henry Walpole. End quote. Christoph Mausch and Libby Robin from The Beast of the Forest in The Edges of Environmental History honoring Jane Carruthers from the RCC Perspectives in 2014. The Beast of Gévaudan, a brutal killing machine so strange in the retelling of its crimes, it would become a legend whose story would survive and evolve over subsequent centuries, achieving immortality through our continued fear and fascination. The mystery of the beast's origin continues almost 300 years later to titillate, and everyone seems to have their own theories, some more fantastic than others, some completely mundane. Mausch and Robin remind us that most theories on the beast's origins, though, rely on the belief that there was only one vicious predator slaughtering innocents in the years between 1764 and 1767 in the region of Gévaudan. 
They say this supposition led to sensational descriptions of the beast. Quote, it was extraordinarily large. It was deviantly fierce. It had a corrupted lust for blood. It was a werewolf. It was an unknown species. It was a hybrid. It was a hyena. It was a savage survivor from the prehistoric world. Its eyes had a satanic glow. It leaped gorges in a single bound. It was supernatural. It was an instrument of divine retribution. It was bred with malice. It was trained with a purpose. It was manipulated by a psychotic human. It was a man in a wolf skin. All of these theories have been generated across the centuries, and most of them made their appearance within months of the first attacks. End quote. Clearly, whatever was happening in Jevodan, people believed it was abnormal, extreme, and terrifying. But why? After all, the historian Jean-Marc Mauricio estimated that there were, on average, 100 fatal wolf attacks every year in France from the end of the 17th century until the early 19th century. So what made the attacks in Gévaudan legendary? Let's follow the story from the beginning to the end and find out. Lorraine Bossonot, writing for Smithsonian Magazine in June of 2017, says the region of Gévaudan in southern France was, quote, just as mysterious as its monster. It had the reputation for being a remote, isolated backwater where the forces of nature had not been fully tamed, where the forests were indeed enchanted, end quote. So when reports of the brutal murders of young women and children began streaming in, it wasn't long before the mystery of the region compounded and enhanced the mystery of the beast. The first victim of the beast was a 14-year-old shepherdess by the name of Jean Boulet. She was killed near Le Hubac, near Langon. This is the first departure James Grant takes in his short story where he doesn't name the first victim at all and gives an alternate location and time of the attack being in Mend and Provence in December. This first attack, though, occurred in late summer of 1764, and though brutal and tragic, no one at the time was terribly alarmed, as wolf attacks were not uncommon. Then, according to Joseph Michaels, writing for History.com in May of 2020, quote, On October 8, 1764, hours after a mauling, the beast was seen at Chateau de la Bon, stalking a herdsman. Hunters followed the animal into the open. The hunter shot a volley of musket fire into the creature, but after a fall, the beast rose and ran off. End quote. Throughout the rest of 1764, numerous attacks would be recounted, most involving young women and children, who Boissonal says had, quote, their throats torn out and heads chewed off. End quote. Not typical wolf behavior, by the way. On January 12th of 1765, Jacques Portefeuille 
ten years old, and some of his friends are attacked by the beast. James Grant saw fit to keep young Portefeuille's story mostly intact in his retelling, although the addition of the children having iron-tipped stakes to fight the beast with seems an exaggeration, as is the assertion that all the boys were given educations. Only Portefeuille, in fact, was given a free ride to school by the king. But the story of the ten-year-old child's bravery in his leading a counterattack upon the terrifying beast finally prompts King Louis XV to commit aid to the people of the Gévaudan, and he posts a 6,000 livre bounty on the head of the beast. Historians point out, however, the king's interest and aid in the hunt was likely more attributable to political motivations than any sympathy for the plight of peasants. France had just suffered major losses and humiliation during the Seven Years' War. They had faced several brutal defeats at the hands of both the British and the Prussians, losing most of France's overseas empire, including Canada. France's finances and national pride were bankrupt, and the populace was feeling angsty. La Bette was the perfect foe to unite the nation and give Louis XV a quick and easy win, or so he thought. The first concerted and organized effort to curtail the killing was orchestrated by Etienne Lafont, a regional government delegate, and Captain Jean-Baptiste Duhamel, leader of the local infantry and the Claremont Prince Dragoons. At one point, Duhamel had up to 30,000 men, quote-unquote, volunteered to help with the hunt, and he organized them like military units. He also employed a vast array of tactics, including leaving out poison debate and dressing some of his men up as women to try to lure the beast into a trap. At one point, the promised reward for the, captain of the capture of the beast would reach as high as one year's salary, so the hunters were well motivated. But Boissonal says Duhamel's motivation ran deeper. Quote, for men like Duhamel, the hunt was a way to redeem his honor after the war, end quote. She goes on to quote Smith in her article, saying, There are many signs of wounded masculinity among the lead huntsmen, Smith says, especially Duhamel. He had a highly sensitive regard for his own honor and some bad experiences in the war and looked at this challenge of defeating the beast as a way to redeem himself, end quote. Duhamel would claim to have encountered and wounded the beast, but claimed he was hampered by the incompetence of the locals and his guards in achieving his goal of killing the beast. He would be dismissed for his failure, yet another blow to his already deeply damaged pride. James Grant, however, would at least recall his name to history in his account of Duhamel's completely fictitious yet sensational scene in which he launches himself headlong into the fray with sword drawn only to comically find the beast had leapt behind him. Not, I'm sure, the story as Duhamel would tell it, 
Duhamel did, however, leave behind an account of the beast's description. Quote, Breast as wide as a horse, a body as long as a leopard's, fur that was red with a black stripe. You will undoubtedly think, like I do, that this is a monster, the father of which is a lion. What its mother was remains to be seen. End quote. After Duhamel is removed from the team, King Louis XV sends two professional wolf hunters to pick up where Duhamel left off. These were Jean-Charles Marc-Antoine Vomail d'Anaval and his son, Jean-Francois d'Anaval. They brought eight bloodhounds with them, and employing stealthier tactics than their militarily-minded predecessor, they would organize hunting parties to rout out the beast. They hunted Eurasian wolves throughout the region for four months without stopping the attacks. So, just like their predecessor, they too would leave the region sans fame and sans reward. James Grant mentions the Donavals in his tale, but lays the majority of their portion of the tale on the fictional character, the Sieur de la Chomette. As a last attempt at redeeming and raising his flagging popularity, Louis XV sends his own personal huntsman, huntsman and sole arquebus bearer. An arquebus is a long gun, so like a rifle. Francois Antoine is sent to Gévaudan to slay the beast. Louis just wants his, this fiasco to end, as after the humiliations of the war, the press was having a field day reporting on the continued failures of the authorities to capture and kill the beast. Indeed, the story was the hottest piece of gossip in the Western world, with reports appearing, as Williams says, from Boston to Brussels, becoming the world's first viral media sensation. Further fueling the media frenzy, on August 11, 1765, Marie-Jean Vallée, a 19-year-old woman, is attacked while crossing the Dej River with her little sister. Williams says, quote, Armed with a bayonet affixed to a pole, Vallée impaled the beast's chest. The creature got away, but Vallée became known as the Amazon and the maid of Gévaudan, end quote. James Grant completely recasts Valet in his story, replacing Valet and her sister with a mother named Jane Chaston and her baby. Marie-Jean Valet's story is not only more interesting than Grant's, however, it also is the source for the belief the beast was afraid of cattle, as Marie-Jean Valet and her sister were watching over the herd near Langon in eastern Gévaudan and reported the beast was, quote, like a wolf, yet not a wolf, end quote, and that the bulls in her herd had driven it off. Meanwhile, Francois Antoine has been scouring the countryside since June of 1765, and on September 20th, or thereabout, he kills a large gray wolf measuring two and a half feet high, five feet seven inches long, and weighing merely 130 pounds. He dubbed it 
Le Loup de Chazé, naming it after a local abbey, and declared, quote, By present report, signed from our hand, we never saw a big wolf that could be compared to this one. Hence, we believe this could be the fearsome beast that caused so much damage, end quote. Could be, he says. But local victims would come forward, identifying scars and wounds on the animal, claiming they had given those marks to the beast when it had attacked them. So Antoine has his prized beast stuffed and sent to Versailles, where Antoine de Boiterne, Francois Antoine's son, accepts the heroic accolades on his father's behalf, while the elder Antoine stays behind in Auvergne to chase down three animals he believes are the beast's mate and two cubs. He succeeds in killing the female and one cub, which is already larger than its mother. Upon examination, it is discovered the cub has a rare hereditary malformation, which presents as a double set of dew claws, which could explain some of the reports claiming the beast had talons on its feet. Interestingly, this particular genetic anomaly was only found in the Bar Rouge or Beauceron dog breed. Here again we find Grant's departure from the historical in his fictional retelling, as not only does he end the story here, he changes the hero slightly, claiming it was a Sieur Antoine de Bauterne, a gentleman of Paris, who set out for Gévaudan on purpose to encounter it, the beast. And while Antoine de Bauterne did indeed present the stuffed corpse at court, he was neither the killer, nor was he a thrill-seeker who sought the challenge on a whim. His father was sent by the king to end the beast, and as far as Louis XV and his court cared, the beast was dead, a rather disappointingly normal, wolfish beast, and they were bored. So it comes as no surprise when, on December 2, 1765, two boys, one six years old, the other twelve, were attacked, and the king would offer no further aid, because clearly the stuffed creature in his palace was the infamous beast, and whatever they were dealing with now could only be regular predators. But the locals were not convinced. After a series of 12 more brutal attacks followed near La Bessire Saint-Marie, the local nobleman, the Marquis de Abshire, puts together a hunt on June 19, 1767. A local hunter by the name of Jean Chastel joins the hunt. He was part of Captain Duhamel's original hunting crew, but Duhamel had him imprisoned after Chastel led the party into the swamp, claiming Chastel was trying to sabotage their hunt for the beast. Some even suggested Chastel did this deliberately because he was secretly the beast's master and had trained the beast to kill. It is more likely, however, that as a native of the region whose profession was hunting, that Chastel simply knew the habits of the local animals and the character of the land far better than the imported soldiers. 
Either way, the scourge of Gévaudan finally ended that fine June day in 1767. Jean Chastel shot the beast on the slopes of Mont Moucher and killed it. They took the animal's body to Dr. Boulanger to have it necropsied, and his report is given in what is called the Marin Report, transcribed by Etienne Marin. Quote, Results of the examination were consistent with a large wolf or wolf dog, but the remains were incomplete by the time Boulanger acquired them, precluding conclusive identification of the animal. Upon being opened, the animal's stomach was shown to contain the remains of its last victim. End quote. Human remains in the animal's stomach determined definitively that this beast had a taste for humans, at the very least. And considering the attacks seem to have stopped after this, it appears Jean Chastel is the most plausible hero of this story, if there even is a hero. In the end, it would appear the terrible beast was likely some hybrid cross of a wolf with a large breed of dog, so how did this story become so monstrous it is still considered an unsolved nightmare-fueled tale of the supernatural and conspiracies of creepy noblemen? Mausch and Robbins say, quote, Local superstitions about werewolves, witches, and demons were probably the least of these exacerbations. More influential, argues Smith, were the opinions and purposes of urban, educated elites, scientists, journalists, noblemen, the bishop, and the king, end quote. Scientists were eager to discover new species, the more exotic and shocking, the better. So they jumped on the possibility of a new mega-beast like Cops on Donuts, and before you complain about the simile, I lived in Albuquerque when the police misappropriated the use of a police helicopter to pick up donuts at the newly opened Krispy Kreme. So yeah, that's called empirical evidence. Journalists, likewise, had a hunger for something tasty because the king had placed them on a starvation diet after France's spectacular failure during the Seven Years' War forbidding them from publishing anything relating to politics. So reporters started writing about Fate de Vere, which were stories about the occurrences in small towns and rural areas, similar to modern true crime shows like Murder in the Heartland. And the Beast was the perfect mixture of tragedy, mystery, mysticism, and menace. The nobility were looking for ways to redeem their honor after their failed leadership led to such horrible defeats for France during the war, and the beast provided the perfect moving target. The bishop and the king, however, had supreme influence. We've already discussed the king's need for the beast to be some Herculean foe he could be seen to vanquish, but how did a ravenous, murderous beast help a shepherd of man like the bishop. It brought people down the path of fear and back into church where his influence and power were greatest. According to Mausch and Robin, the Bishop of Mend, 
the cathedral city of the Gévaudan region, issued a circular, quote, invoking the beast as the wrath of God and blaming this extraordinary scourge on the spiritual waywardness of the people themselves. A ferocious beast unknown in our latitudes appears all of a sudden as if miraculously. Without anyone knowing from whence it came, it is because you have offended God. End quote. The bishop would call for repeated rounds of public prayer for deliverance from this hell beast, and at the height of the panic, people would seek shelter in the church. The sensationalism would also mark open season on the wolves of France, leading very naturally to a dramatic reduction in wolf attacks. Mausch and Robin, though, finished their article about Gévaudan's beast with an interesting anecdote. In 2012, wolves were reintroduced to the Lozère region, formerly Gévaudan, and are immediately labeled a scourge and a threat. Quote, in July 2012, in a little village in the Valais, a horse was killed and found partly devoured. Its head and neck were especially attacked, its eyes and ears eaten. I grew up with horses, but I've never seen anything so horrible, confessed a villager to Paris Match. Locals wondered, what kind of beast could attack with such savagery? What are the thickening forests hiding? End quote. What indeed? Mausch and Robin are of the opinion that humanity constantly underestimates nature in all its many faces, beauty, power, and ferocity saying, quote, When it takes us unawares, we strive to find an extraordinary explanation rather than an ordinary one, end quote. As I like to say, always apply the KISS principle to a problem. Keep it simple, stupid. But as Sherlock Holmes reminds us, quote, When you have eliminated the impossible, Whatever remains, however improbable, must be the truth. End quote. There is still plenty of room in this world for the sensational, the supernatural, the surreal, and the sublime. But ignoring the facts, evading the science, and creating paranoid conspiracies? This way lies madness. Let me know what you think. I'd love to hear from you. And please don't forget to like, subscribe, and leave that review if you can. You can also share this podcast. Seeing those numbers grow fuels me and inspires me. You can email me at lostalespodcast at yahoo.com. Find the Facebook group at Lost Tales Podcast. And on Instagram, we are at Lost Tales podcast. I can't wait to hear from you. And until next time, keep reading. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. 
This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandslots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.